Welcome to the ABCs of Matrescence. We are two mamas, Emma and Mackenzie. We both have toddler age boys. And here on our podcast, we chat all things real motherhood from A to Z, everything in between. Matrescence is the process of becoming a mother, and that is the topic that we dive into and explore on each and every episode. So welcome, everybody. Thank you for joining us. I am Mackenzie, and I am solo on the mic today, and I have the great fortune of interviewing Nefertiti Austin. So we're going to be hearing from her today. Nefertiti Austin is an author and a memorialist whose work focuses on amplifying diverse voices in motherhood. Her memoir, Motherhood So White, is an Amazon bestseller that offers a profound look into her childhood and upbringing, including her own Black adoption. This is a book that I read and thoroughly enjoyed, so having her on today to discuss more in detail about her process of writing the book and about herself is, is truly a pleasure. Additionally, Motherhood So White dives deep into Nefertiti's adoption of her two Black children as a single mother. Her powerful perspective informs and educates her readers while offering them an intimate look at her unique journey, as well as giving voice to the motherhood experience of Black mothers in a broader sense. So thank you so much for being with us today, Nefertiti. Welcome. Well, thank you so much for having me. So before we jump into the interview, we would just love to hear a little bit what life has been like for you and your family just over the last several months because of COVID and then also looking towards the fall. What is the fall looking like for August and Cherish? Well, let's see. Uh, Everything was going great, like the rest of the world. And then March 12th, I believe, is when we (laughs) shut down. And initially, it was bizarre to be home with the kids essentially 24-7, but I think we got used to it pretty quickly, and, you know, there were certainly some lows with regard to racial upheaval, George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, Maude Arbery, and the protest and all of those things, so I think that it, it added a layer of stress for us, and largely because we talk about race and history because I am a historian. And so it really sort of amped up, I guess, my sort of explanation and discussion about what was happening in the world and why and really having to do things at a teenage level, 13-year-old level, and then for my seven-year-old. So in the midst of getting these this crash course in civil rights, we were also dealing with, hey, go outside and play. And, you know, refamiliarize yourself with the neighborhood. And that has lasted throughout the summer. And I think the kids are better for it, definitely. And I think as a family, we are closer because we've had this very unique time to be together. And then for fall, I, my son will be online. In fact, he started his very first day of eighth grade yesterday. He zoomed right on in. And I'm hoping my daughter will be able to start second grade on campus in a week or so. So we'll see. And if not, we will continue to make lemonade out of lemons and just keep moving forward. So we're going to jump into some questions that I have for you today that I'm excited to share, but would you mind first telling our listeners just a little bit more about yourself? I I gave a brief introduction, but anything else that you would like to share about who you are? Well, thank you. I am the daughter of Black Power Revolutionaries, and they certainly, as young people, were very passionate about equality and justice. And I think often when I'm, when I watch like the protests and things on television, like, oh, my parents would have been front and center. And so along with 
being very active politically, they both developed drug habits, which was pretty common for, uh, you know, I guess hippies, counterculture, the whole bit in the 60s and 70s. But unfortunately, they were unable to kick their habits and that directly impacted our little family. And as a result, my brother and I went to live with our maternal grandparents. And so we were raised by them. And so when I think of my parents, I really think of my grandparents because from age nine on, those were the people who made all of the decisions on our behalf. And I don't think I was aware that that experience set the stage for me to grow up and become an adoptive mother. I certainly realized it while I was writing my memoir, Motherhood So White. But previous to that, it was just something that happened. And I understood that there were many ways to make a family. And so ultimately, I give them a lot of credit for a decision that they were not super pleased with, but it, it worked out to be a great decision for me. And so that was basically how I came to adoption. And I thought, though, that I would get married and, you know, go the traditional route and until I hit like my mid-20s or so. And I thought, eh, no, I'm not ready <laughs> for all of that. And then about a decade later, I finally was ready. And I think between my 50,000 jobs and kind of moving all over the place, I'd had enough life experience that I was really ready to make a different change in my life and could really build upon what my parents did do, what they weren't able to do because of drug addiction and my dad being in and out of jail my whole life until he was murdered and then reaching my own sort of um, space of stability and wanting to provide a home for a child and then later two uh, in need. I think that's that's really amazing because I, everybody's journey to becoming a mother is so unique and so different. And to hear that for you, it was it was a, a desire that truly just developed with time and, and with experience in your life. I think that's that's very interesting. Yes. Do you recall like a specific maybe moment or was it just um, like, like as you described, just kind of, you know, as, as you entered into your thirties, thinking a little bit more about your desire to, to give back, I, you could, you know, to, to mm -hmm. the community in that way, to be able to share all of your accumulated knowledge and experience with children? I don't know. It was weird. It was like all of a sudden I started noticing strollers and baby items and baby names. And I started looking into uh, blogs. So this is like 06 or so. And uh, reading blogs and magazines about children and babies. And I wasn't dating anyone at the time, no one seriously, and I wasn't married. So I wasn't waiting on a mate to create a family, but I was aware like, okay, if I pursue this, I would be pursuing this on my own. And what I discovered about myself is that above and beyond anything, I really wanted to be a mother. So I don't know that there was any sort of, I don't think there was anything that happened because I had two nieces by that time. I had a godson. So I had been around little children and my friends had had kids at this point. And um, so I wasn't a stranger to babies. I had changed diapers and the whole bit. 
But I don't know, it was like something crawled in into my spirit almost. And it was like, it's time. And so I was like, yeah. And more importantly, it was time for me to adopt. So that was the other thing that was very clear to me was I not only want to be a mother, but I want to be a mother through adoption. Hmm. Yeah, because and you certainly discussed this in your in your book the different the different routes of mm-hmm. you know why someone would choose adoption or why someone would choose you know a, perhaps a different option you know obviously like donor or you know if they were going to go if they wanted to have the biological route they could do a donor oh, sure. um, sperm or egg depending on you know the situation etc. But for you, you were just very certain that you wanted it to be adoption. Yeah, my best friend is adopted and she's an adoption social worker. And as I got older, I began to meet adults who had been adopted, people I had known I didn't know they were adopted. And so I think my experience of adoption was very positive. And I saw that these people grew up to be very responsible adults and they were kind people and they were just good people. And so I think because I saw sort of like the end game, like, oh, okay, this this has a positive or it can have a positive outcome. That was another thing that was very intriguing. It was like another sort of uh, plus for in, in the adoption column. And then I wanted to go the foster route because I live in Los Angeles and we have so, I mean, thousands of children in foster care. And it just seemed reasonable that I would, I would start in my own backyard uh, to pursue adoption. Mm-hmm. And, and along the, along the lines of pursuing adoption and, and the process that you went through, obviously, and you explain this at, at length in your book, which was so interesting to me. It's a, a topic that I know so little about mm-hmm. the, the, the process that, that women or men, couples, families go through in order to pursue adoption. And, you know, along that way, obviously you encountered various obstacles, et cetera. But because now you've been through the process and you've also educated about the process, yeah. I know that you were, you worked for a period of time as well, supporting families through that. What advice would you give to somebody, you know, whether single or coupled who was standing before you saying, you know, Hey, I'm, I, I really am curious about adoption. What, what kind of beginning pathway would you, would you set them on? I think they should ask themselves a few questions. It really starts with a lot of self-reflection and, you know, A, is this a good time for me? And by good time, I mean, do does their job or career support being able to have a child? Because it does require a lot of time. And, you know, could you get off? Because you certainly need time to bond. I mean, not just with an infant, but a two-year-old or a seven-year-old or a teenager. Like, that's super important to have the time to be able to devote to supporting the needs of that child or if if people choose to get siblings. And then I would ask them to, if they had to write down like their support system, like who do you know that you could call at a moment's notice and say, I need help, you know, help me. <laughs> and, um, you know, what does that look like? And ideally, could you have multiple people who could support your family and community is huge. So as a single black woman wanting a black boy, I knew that I would have to build a male community for him because I could teach him a whole bunch of things, but I'm not a man and I can't teach him, you know, all of the things that go into becoming a man. So, you know, in with regard to gender, you know, that's huge that a child 
has that modeled for them. And also, I would say, like, if that desire to become a parent is very strong and you feel called to adopt, I think people should definitely pursue it. I think it's easy to get talked out of, especially family and, you know, sometimes even uh, church community because people are scared for you. They're scared of the unknown. Mm -hmm. And so people, a couple or person or family should really educate themselves about the children. So I saw foster kids, like regular kids, and these are children who are in foster care due to neglect, due to abuse, and what they need is stability. And often the kids present with uh, maybe a few learning disabilities or some challenges, that sort of thing. And those are relatively easy to overcome. It's not, a, it's not that it doesn't require a lot of work because it does, but you know, you have to go into it knowing like, okay, if I get a child who has some delays, am I up for that? You know, am I willing to educate myself about these things? And then finally the cultural piece, because transracial adoption is super popular, largely because there's mostly children of color in the system, depending on where you live. And so would you be open to learning about your child's culture? And if you don't live in, in an area that supports a diverse culture, are you willing to go to a different neighborhood? You know, what are you willing to do to support that child's identity and, um, and the person who they're going to be become? And if a person or family or couple or whatever can answer like in the affirmative for those things, I think they should go for it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's really interesting what you said about the, about the developmental delays and you touched on this in your book as well. And I thought it was so, so interesting is that sometimes the, what a child is you, as you said, is presenting with a developmental delay. Then in the book you explained, it can be as simple as that child has not had that milestone mirrored to them enough. Right. And I thought like you, I really like, I mean, if someone had been filming me, like it was definitely like a jaw drop moment for me because it made <laughs> me realize like, wow. So, you know, yeah. So I, I was wondering, can you talk to that just a little bit? Because it was, it was just a really, really interesting piece of, of the puzzle that you, that you put into your book. Yeah. So, you know, my very first, the very first child I was matched with. So once you complete the process and there is a form that you complete and you state your, what you want. And so I wanted a little boy and I wanted him to be at least half African-American and I wanted him to be six months or less. And, um, I was not necessarily wanting a child whose parents had, uh, a history of alcoholism, uh, some of the drugs, you know, over time, you can kind of work through that. So I was all set. And the very first child I was matched with was, I think he was nine months old. He was half African American. So pretty much kind of hit all the, the things that I wanted. However, he had some delays. And so he couldn't hold his own bottle. He couldn't sit up on his own. And I think there were a couple of other things. So brand new, you know, was going to be a brand new parent. And even though I was very intentional about my choice to adopt, I didn't feel that I was going to be able to support that child. And so I said no. But then fast forward six, almost seven years. And when my daughter was placed with me, what I discovered was that she hadn't learned how to wave and uh, I think 
I'm not sure if Smile was one. There's an, another something that she had a few delays with. And so I take her to the pediatrician and the pediatrician explained to me that a child's going to grow physically because that's just biology, but there are things that they have to be taught. And so she said, wave to her and smile. <laughs> and it was just as simple as that. And, and in no time at all, not only did she hit those milestones that, that had previously been delayed, she exceeded them. So that was a really good lesson for me. Yeah, it's a good reminder for us as parents because I know, so my son and, and Emma's son, both of them are just three weeks apart. Owen's just three weeks older than my son, Emerson. And mm -hmm. an interesting thing is that Owen is very verbal. I mean, he is talking, talking, talking up a storm. And Emerson says maybe three words. I mean, his animal sounds, I'm telling you, you would be impressed. <laughs> but but this, the verbiage is, it's very limited. Mm -hmm. And I, I we went to our appointment for 18 months and I was asking, you know, about it. And, and you know, they were just reassuring me, look, like, Every kiddo also is going to kind of have their own pace. That's and right. He's, he's doing his thing. He, I see he understands you. I see that he's communicating in his way. And you've just got to give him a chance. And it was, it was kind of a reminder to me as a mom that like, you know, we read the books. We yes. have this like, you know, you have your mindset and you're like, yes. okay, so a child should do X at this age. And right. the pediatrician was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, you've got to kind of let him also be him. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm sure you've experienced that many times over since you have two kiddos who are certainly much older than toddlerhood now, but it's interesting. Yes, yes your doctor's yeah. absolutely right. And uh, Emerson will speak when he's ready. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, then, and, then, and then everyone tells me, and then he won't stop talking, right? He so. sure won't. So enjoy it. <laughs> you know, also one, one thing you, you shared just a few minutes ago about as you're considering adoption, one of the main mm -hmm. um, I guess you could say the pillars of the consideration process, because I really liked how you outlined that, was to think about what your community is. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to pause there for a second, because to be very honest with you, I never asked myself that question when my husband and I were saying, okay, we would like to try to have a child. Mm -hmm. And if I could go back in time, I think one of the biggest things that I would do to my wanting to get pregnant self and then my pregnant self would be to say, you need to stop and you need to pause and you need to determine, you know, who and what and where this community is going to come from. Because mm -hmm. my husband and I live thousands of miles away from either side of the family. So we have mm -hmm. no family here. Okay. And I think it would have been really helpful for us to have, you know, to thought have thought through that process. You know, are there, you know, a couple friends or even friendships we can work on developing during my pregnancy that could potentially be, you know, more of, of that sense of, like you said, someone you can call in the middle of the night. I, I just thought that that was, that was really well, well said. And I was wondering, do you mind just sharing a little bit about how, you know, that, that community building process did look like for you? And, and maybe some of our listeners can, can learn a little bit from that, myself included. Okay. So uh, I think the, the earliest sort of community my son had certainly were my friends and then daycare. So we had the best daycare provider ever and she really became like a second mom for him. And for me, she became someone I could get a lot of advice for. She had been, she actually was adopted and had been a daycare provider for probably about 30 years. And she was younger than my grandparents. And so by this time, my grandparents were in their 80s. And so, I mean, they made it very clear, you know, we can help you financially, but we're not going to be able to like help 
like hands-on type help. And I understood that and that was fair. And so my mother lived out of state. I did not have the best relationship with her and she didn't raise me. So I certainly wasn't going to turn to her for parenting advice. And I, again, really am so grateful to my friends. And in fact, a lot of notions that I had had about children and comments that I had made when I was single with no children, I had to walk a lot of stuff back. And I was on the phone calling people like, oh, remember when I said you should <laughs> do such and such? I'm sorry. I, I spoke out of turn. I didn't know what I was talking about. I'm sorry. And so very humbling experience uh, building community, but I'm so happy that I was able to make those calls. And so definitely daycare got us through the first three years. Her name was Nancy. And then after that, uh, our new community came in the form of friendships that he made in kindergarten. And he played uh, Little League baseball. And that was the beginning of our village that we still have. And um, you know, going strong nine years later. And so super proud and happy of this community that we have built. And they have been so wonderful because they've also welcomed his sister into the fold as well. And so these these guys, the, the fathers of my son's friends have been his male community and my son's godfather. So you, got, you, you find community wherever you are. Mm-hmm. It's and it's a reminder too. Obviously, right now it's a little bit challenging. You know, in, in many cases because of COVID, right? People probably aren't necessarily as actively involved in in right. various activities. But you know, like you said, when 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 it's possible, like it's very important to do that. And, and I'm sure you know for for you too, it's it's not just a matter of okay, you sign up for Little League. It's like okay, you actually have to strike up the conversation. Yes, you have to, yes, which is hard, right? Because we're so we're sometimes we're so tempted to just. You know, like I take Emerson to swim lessons and it's easier just to go through the class and not really socialize, but, right. but it's, you know, you have to make an effort. You really do. And I'm definitely I, I more of an introvert and certainly have had to force myself out of myself because, you know, if you don't, then you end up doing all of the heavy lifting on your own and you burn out that way. So yeah, you have to step outside yourself. Mm-hmm. Yes, and, and um, in fact, in, in your book, I want to share a passage that, that you wrote that really, really resonated with me in terms of, you know, some, some, maybe some of the things we imagine motherhood would be versus how they really are. Mm-hmm. And then also that, that need to really be willing to admit when we have a need, right? Yes. When we need help or support. So in your book, you share, it's quote here. I'd had no clue how utterly exhausting motherhood was and suddenly understood why couples fought over seemingly insignificant tasks. Even with my supportive family and friends, I had no daily backup in the house and all of August's needs fell on me. I never complained, which was another new mom error. I didn't feel like I deserved the luxury of complaining. I had chosen single motherhood and falsely believed that showing weakness meant my journey to motherhood through adoption was a mistake. So this was... This really, really struck a chord with me because, you know, it's it's something that I think a lot of mothers struggle with is that we can do it all. And yes. I, I even think of how many nights, you know, my husband would, would come home or sometimes the schedule is, is – is, so it wouldn't be like necessarily coming home at night. It might be coming home in the morning or whatnot. Mm-hmm. And I always felt like, okay, I've got to have breakfast ready or dinner ready and the baby's got to be situated so he can just come in. And even though these are things he never imposed on me. Right. It was like in my mind I thought, oh, it should be like this. Right. Or, 
you know, you, you spend an, an hour trying to get things done in the kitchen, kind of just throwing toys at the baby to keep them entertained. And then you feel all this guilt as if mm-hmm. you should have been focusing entirely on the baby, et cetera. And then, of course, the need to ask for help and ask for support. So again, it was clearly very powerful, you know, for me, but, you know, I'm just curious um, for you in this process, what really was that like for you in, in sense of motherhood, I guess, humbling your, your previous notion that you could do it all and realizing, you know what, like, I actually do need to lean into this community. Yes. Well, I think motherhood is, is incredibly humbling. And even when you think you have it figured out, you don't. And because the kids switch up on you and you know, that's okay. So I did, I really felt like if I can't do it all, then that means this was a mistake. I made a poor choice and I, and so that was dumb because I was overlooking the fact that I had people who wanted to support and who wanted to help. And while I had a lot of help outside of the house, I mean, my complaint then and now is that I need help in the house. But I certainly can look back at times when I could have asked for, hey, I need to take a nap. And could you please come and sit with or can I drop him off or can I drop her off just so that I can have, you know, an hour or two hours to myself. Um, little luxuries like going to the grocery store by yourself. Oh my God. I remember my friend used to talk about that and I used to laugh at her, but then <laughs> I, I got it. I was like, oh, this is what she's talking about. And so I was super tired and just really emotionally and physically spent and I really took on too much um, on my own and my advice certainly to new parents is to receive the help let people help you like I had a neighbor who offered to make baby food and freeze it and and which sounded great but I think I was just even too tired to take her up on it and so I never you know never even got that far. So when my daughter came along though, I was certainly cured of being super mom because there was no way that I could juggle a seven-year-old and an infant well on my own. And so I I really leaned all over folks uh, for help. And so that was definitely a very good reminder that I'm certainly a better parent when I've had some rest and my my thoughts aren't so clouded with all of the things that need to happen. Mm-hmm. And just giving yourself that permission to say, hey, like raise the hand and say, you know, I need a little bit of help here. And yeah, I think that's, I think that's a good point. I, I think that there are people that genuinely do want to help and they say, you know, I'm here if you need anything. I mean, how often do we say that, right? Let me know if you need anything. But yes. it's like we actually have to then let them know. We do. We do. So yes. Yeah. So I would love to jump in a little bit more specifically about your book. So your Amazon best-selling book, Motherhood So White, and you wrote your book and, and you wrote in, in, in the, kind of towards the end at the conclusion, you said, you know, I wrote this book for, for two main reasons, two main goals. You said you set out to encourage more women to choose how to curate a family and also to begin to bridge the racial divide that currently encapsulates motherhood. So for myself personally, as a white woman from a two-parent household, I was really informed not only about your decision to adopt as a single mom, but also your lived experience as a black mother raising black children. So overall, do you feel satisfied with how your book has been received? What what has been perhaps surprising to you in the reception of your book? 
Yes, I am definitely uh, very satisfied and very pleased with how Motherhood So White has done. So what's been really great uh, on twofold is that I, I hit both of my audiences. So, so many black women have reached out to say thank you for this book and especially women who have kind of been like on the fence with regard to whether or not they're going to adopt solo um, or even parent solo. And so, you know, they've said like, wow, you know, this sort of gave me information or let me know that I can do it or that, you know, maybe I should wait. So that was wonderful that they felt seen because that was my big issue i didn't feel seen in the parent in the parenting genre or movies or tv shows or magazines or anything and so i wanted other black women to see themselves on the page in a conversation about motherhood and parenting and babies and and all of those things and with regard to um white mothers and and even Asian moms and Latinx moms, but mainly white mothers. I've been invited onto so many podcasts and I've been interviewed and I've had lots of really wonderful conversations with women who've said I hadn't considered I hadn't considered the cultural nuances, the cultural things that happened before. So thank you for sharing that. It is a real concern for you that when your son is out and now I've got a daughter, so she's got a different set of societal issues that she'll encounter. But my son, my black son, who presents as black when he's out in the world, that there is a level of fear that you experience that I never think about. And thank you for sharing that you started his racial education early and why that's necessary because it's making me realize that here, I, th I think I'm a great person and, you know, raising my kids to be kind people, but they need to understand diverse experiences. They need to understand what it's like to be black in America. And so that has been really great because I feel like, okay, the message is getting out there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that something that really came through in your book is that it's not enough to just stop at kindness. No. You know, we can't just simply try to teach our children to be kind and then put up our hands and say, well, I have a nice kid. It needs to go much more, I guess, in depth than that. It definitely does because, you know, I, I have friends at my kid's school who, who've said, oh, well, I don't see color. And the problem with saying you don't see color, that you're colorblind, is that A, that's not true because we do see color. And B, I think it's fine and it's wonderful to acknowledge someone's difference. I mean, it's not a bad thing because we all come to the table uh, with our own unique qualities and, and things that are important to us. And, you know, how fun it is to learn something new about a friend, to learn about something special, maybe a special holiday or a special food or a special name, something that is important to them. And so we know that we don't live in a society where everyone is equal. And we're certainly working towards that. So between now and then, let's be honest about what is happening. And let's be honest about ways in which white people can use their privilege to support uh, other families and open doors for other families and certainly to teach their kids through literature or friendships, you know, foster relationships with classmates to learn about each other. Because I think that is how you achieve empathy and empathetic children. And 
takes us closer to where we really can just kind of be versus where we are now in this very racially charged um, situation. Mm-hmm. Yes, definitely. And, and being able to be just, I think the intentionality of it is something that's really, really critical and something that Emma and I have found just personally as we've, you know, dove in a little bit deeper to try to understand like ways in which we can provide diversity for our sons. So Emerson is half Vietnamese. My husband's was born in Vietnam and came over to the U.S. when he was eight and a half with his siblings and parents. So it's really, you know, important for me as a mother because I'm speaking to him in French, um, just because that's my background as a French teacher. My husband decided to just speak in English. And so, but how can we share with Emerson about, you know, his history as far as, you know, the fact that he's half Vietnamese. And so my husband and I talk about it, obviously, with food, et cetera. That's an easy way to do it. But, you know, in the future, we have, you know, the intention of going to Vietnam with him and, and explaining to him what um, what it was like for, you know, for his father to grow up there and, and, and trying to do that. And also a few of the family traditions that my husband grew up with, we, we, we have implemented them into our own household. But you do find that you have to be intentional about these things, you know, and... Um, it's, it's definitely a, a constant work. And then for Emma and I specifically in, in trying to be more, I would say, aware and intentional about what, what it means to be two white women raising sons in the U.S. right now. What, what kind of role can we play in that? So, for example, we found that ways that we can support black mothers in our communities and outside of them can be through friendship, mm-hmm. purchasing services or products that are black owned and created, you know, such as when I went to purchase your book, Nefertiti, I found a black owned bookstore that I was able to purchase it through. Oh, and that nice. was a, Yeah, it was it was neat. It was, you know, it's it has to be obviously an intentional mm-hmm. action because mm-hmm. it's obviously great. Amazon is wonderful and convenient, but yes. it's also something that you can do intentionally. Right. Um and then also donating to causes we believe in. So for example, for Emma, one cause that's extremely close to her heart is she lives in Georgia and in Georgia they have one of the most um, elevated maternal death rates in the whole country and so for her and her husband that's a cause they're very passionate about that they donate to mm-hmm. um, you know to, to create support for women of color who have a, a much larger percentage chance of encountering some type of complication or ultimately death through through birth in Georgia. Right. Um, and then obviously just educating ourselves, be it through literature, documentaries, social media, etc. So this all being said, these are ways that we're trying to be intentional. But for both of us, it's always like, there's always that what else, what else can be done, especially during this time of COVID, right? Mm-hmm. You know, we can take our sons to playgrounds, we can try to be meeting other mothers, but there is a little bit of a limitation now. So just to ask you, Nefertiti, what ways have you seen your white mother friends step up and support black mothers? Mm-hmm. And then what would you like both us, myself and Emma, and our listeners to know about what it means to truly be present for black women and specifically back black mothers? Well, thank you for all that you guys have done. And I love how intentional you guys have been. So certainly having me on your program is a step in the right direction. And not just me, Nefertiti, but a black mother talking about her experience and having a so within the black community, it's a very normalized upbringing, having been raised by grandparents, but in, you know, mainstream culture, not so much. And so thank you for giving me an opportunity to share that. And the other thing that I'd say that 
my white mom friends have done, you know, same gone to the independent black bookstores and, and that sort of thing. But is talking to one another because, you know, I am fortunate. I do have a lot of white mom friends, friends, and I also have a platform, but for white mothers who don't have a platform, they don't have a podcast or, you know, they're not a journalist, that sort of thing. I think the biggest thing that you guys can do is really kind of talk to each other. And like, for instance, at my kid's school, we have a DEI, so diversity, equity, and inclusion um, mission. And so I know a lot of jobs have those things. And so people attend because they're mandated to, but we found that it's often the same people over and over. So it would be nice if you could grab someone, you know, who's kind of on the fence or they feel like, well, I'm a good person. I don't need that. Those are the ones we need. And those are the ones who will listen to you and Emma, if you say, hey, you know what, I just read this great book, or I saw this program, or there's an event coming up, and would you like to go? Or just kind of check in with them. Maybe they feel intimidated about meeting people from different cultures, and you know, you, you might be the one who has margarita night, and they come over and soon discover, oh, we have, I have a lot in common with this woman who happens to be Black or Latinx or you know, whatever the case may be. And mm -hmm. so I think there are, even even in the time of COVID, that there are ways to continue to engage each other around building trust and support of Black mothers and mothers of color, because we certainly need it and we need each other. And, you know, we've got this huge election that's coming up. And even with local elections, it's important that we be on the same page so that a black woman at 23 years old can get pregnant and hopefully know that, you know, in the 10th month she will give birth and not die because that is heartbreaking and it's terrible. And it would be wonderful to have more support even within the adoption community that everything is not always about white parents who adopt children of color because black parents who adopt children of color have issues as well. So just lots of um, conversation. And I think it's really sort of the personal interaction that really does the best. That's going to take us the furthest. Mm -hmm. And just being, you know, being willing to have those conversations. I mean, it's like, I feel like in general, we feel awkward trying to just say hello to somebody at, like I said, at swim class, yes. or, you know, on the little league field. And so then it's like, but we have to say like, that's a starting point for, for friendship. And that's also certainly a starting point for breaking down any types of racial barriers that we Absolutely. might feel. So. Yeah, it's uncomfortable for everyone, believe me, but it, it has to be done. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's great. You mentioned that too, about getting involved in like, in, if there is like a school program, like you mentioned, is, is that at August school that mm -hmm. you were able to get involved with? So mm -hmm. I, I think that's also a way to, to be intentional. I know I'm part of a Facebook moms group for, um, for a city here in Rhode Island and uh, another kind of breakout group of that, they did um, a group about racial justice. So mm -hmm. in that group, they share if there's, you know, some type of a, you know, if they have um, a rally happening or if there's, you know, anything interesting with books or with documentaries or gatherings, et cetera. And I found that that seems to be a very 
positive kind of way to just check in with with what's happening with the community. So yes, definitely. And even like, you know, you mentioned because we still are in the pandemic and most of the children are going back to school and they're going back online. I mean, we know it's no secret, this digital divide and it's the haves really and the have nots. And I feel for the children, especially children in public school who aren't, uh, don't have the support. So, you know, if people know people who have strong IT skills or they're able to troubleshoot. I mean, you know, getting on Zoom, it's easy once you get the hang of it, but it can be, you know, kind of staggering when you're first starting out. So those are ways to support like your local community, even if that isn't your school, you know, your, your kids may go to private school, but there, there are certainly ways in your neighborhood to support. That's true. Well, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And obviously, you know, just your willingness to come on here and share your story and talk so openly about it, you know, with, with us is, is really meaningful, but it's also what you do in your book. You speak so openly about your journey, about your experience, and you truly invite your readers to come into that world and to expand their knowledge and their understanding. Obviously, it's about you personally, but it really does touch on the greater community as well. And I think that's what's what's was one of the very powerful aspects of it. So thinking about your book and your writing career, and, and obviously what the goals you set out to do and accomplish in motherhood is so white, looking forward, do you have the desire to continue to write on the topic of, of black motherhood? Is that on your horizon right now? Yes, I am thinking through uh, my next book, and I'm thinking it'll be about mothers and daughters. Now, it may not be specific to black mothers and daughters, but just um, mothers and daughters in general. And, um, and as a black woman, of course, there will be, you know, write about um, black moms, but, um, you know, we'll see. I have a book that I have written about children in foster care. And so that's sort of, I think, a another goal of mine, because I think there's one book that's published for kids who are in foster care. And so it kind of would be like for them, and then it would be for other children, again, growing empathy within children for, you know, kids to understand that, you know, you live with your parents, but there's so many children who don't live with their parents. And, um, and you may or may not know that they don't live with their parents. And these are some of their experiences. And, um, so yeah, you know, I will, it, it's funny, my background is fiction, never thought I'd be writing nonfiction. And here I am 10 years later, writing nonfiction. So, <laughs> <laughs> so yes, I will always write about black mothers, black women, uh, to some degree, in addition to the other things that I write about. Wonderful. Well, I, I can tell you that Emma and I would be signing up first for the release of your children's book. Should that be something you you decide to dive into? Because I think it's it is wonderful. And and obviously speaking for for both myself and and Emma, having sons that are currently in you know two parent households, mm-hmm. for us it's it's really important to expose them to to other family compositions and other family stories. And we both have a few books that we found that really talk about, for example, families with same-sex couples mm-hmm. or maybe a single mom or a single dad. And so that's obviously our boys are very young, but we we think that it's appropriate to present certainly the images on the page and to explain to them and, and talk about it um, mm-hmm. at, at this even this young age. But that being said, it's true. I and I don't, he doesn't have a single book. I've never come across a single book. And, and I've, and I've looked into mm-hmm. it that, that does mention anything about foster or even, even the word adoption. Right. So 
Yeah, I think that'd be a very positive addition to to the genre. And that's something you mentioned in Motherhood So White as well, was your own desire to educate yourself more on becoming a mother, but becoming a single mother, obviously, and a black single mother at that. And you said that the you went to the that part of the library and the the shelves were empty. The, those yep. books weren't there. Yes, and so. yeah, they're still empty. So <laughs> there are more books out now that are written by uh, black mothers and <clears throat> excuse me that talk about like motherhood, but with regard to um, single black adoption, I'm still writing solo there and. Um, and there are, a f- like I said, a few more parenting books that deal uh, with, um, that take a look at black parents and parenting, uh, but not really that many. And given the history of black women raising white children in this country, you would think the shelves would be filled with um, books, but um, that is not the case. But hopefully things will change. And as the world opens up, you know, literally and figuratively. I hope that the literary gatekeepers will continue to be more open about broadening and diversifying what certain canons look like. And certainly for children's books, because kids pick up things easily, they develop friendships so easily, they're so loving, and they're so open. And even at a toddler stage, if you could show your children board books with different family configurations then when they get to preschool and kindergarten and you know a friend has two moms or two dads or one mom or mom dad you know it's not a big deal it's just like oh well that's jimmy's mom Mm -hmm. or jimmy's dad and they just keep going hey you want to go play and that's what we want Mm -hmm. exactly that's it's wonderful to think that you know with with you publishing your book and speaking about it so openly and being willing to do things like come here on our podcast. And I know we're just one of many podcasts that that have reached out to you and had you on. And I think that, you know, it's it's important to to understand more about that. And then hopefully there are other women in the black community who might have a desire to share their stories because they're inspired by your own transparency. And I think that would be that would be really positive. It would be to continue to have other moms want to pour into that and, and, and talk about that too. So in, in relation to something that, you know, you really express in your book and then also in a New York Times article that you published over the summer is the topic about black adoption. And we touched on this just a tiny bit at the beginning, but I just wanted to just ask you briefly, um, if you could just tell our listeners a little bit more about this, because for me, reading that New York Times article, which we'll link in the show notes, mm-hmm. was really interesting. And then I read the article, and then I read your book, and then it, it, it was provided, obviously, a lot of information. But your childhood and adolescence were obviously shaped by by Black adoption. Right. So just um, wondering if you can share a little bit about that, just for, for folks who may not have an understanding of the distinction between your usage of the term Black adoption and mm-hmm. then just adoption as a standalone. So... Black adoption is really just my shorthand way of describing an informal adoption. And so within the Black community, it is very common for children to be raised by a grandparent, an aunt, a cousin, even, uh, you know, a play cousin, someone who is not a blood relative, but they're a very close friend of the family. And in some instances, even neighbors, because the goal, of course, is to keep the family together, to keep the family close. And when that's not possible for the family to remain all together in the same home, then the next best thing is, okay, how do we keep this child 
maybe in the extended family or how do we keep this child in the known neighborhood so that this child grows up knowing the people in his life or her life and knowing that uh, she's got a connection to these people. And then when that doesn't happen, that's when the formal route is pursued, whether someone chooses to be a foster parent, or in my case, I chose to be an adoptive parent because there were no children in my family or extended family who needed a home. Everyone was accounted for. So I had no choice but to go outside of my family. And we have a, you know, when I say we black community, we have a long, uh, tenuous relationship with the judicial system. So we're not super thrilled about having to deal with social services or social workers or anything because there's a lot of fear around if my child goes into the system, then we'll lose them. Like, you know, we'll, we'll never get them back. And unfortunately, that has happened. And so um, certainly the impetus is to keep everyone together. And then historically, it's, a, it's an old African practice. And other communities throughout the world live multi-generationally as well. It's just that within the Black community, we're, we still do it. Like it's still something that we start with. And when I disclose that my kids are adopted, I am always, always, always asked by older Black people, do you know her people? Do you know his people? Because they want to know, they need to know that that child has roots. And so it's a thing in our community. Hmm. Well, thank you for sharing that. And, and um, certainly I, I understand from, from what you shared in the book is that it, it set you apart in terms of your decision then to adopt, obviously, for mm-hmm. first August and then cherish without having that, that familiar collect- connection with them. So. Right. Yes. Wonderful. So just to wrap up our time together today, it's a simple question, but I think it's a fun one to hear mm-hmm. from your perspective. And what is for you the very best thing about being August and Cherish's mother? Oh, that's a nice question. Uh, the best thing is really watching them become the people who they are becoming. So, you know, every few months, it's, it's almost like I live with different people. <laughs> so... <laughs> Well, this is this is a this is a preview for me about what's to come. Yes, yes, they do change as as they go. So um, it's definitely fun to watch their evolution, and I'm honored and excited and thrilled to be part of their maturation. And they, as I learn different things about themselves. So, for instance, my son used to take paint and and repaint his Thomas the Trains and that used to drive me crazy because they come painted and he would redo that okay (laughs) and they come with facial expressions and he would take paper and make new facial expressions and tape them over there and I was like it I I never mind but (laughs) fast forward a decade and he has expressed interest in becoming an animator, which makes sense because he has always drawn. And so that's fun to see like, hmm, okay, well, we'll see. And who knows, you know, five years from now, it may be something totally different, but that's fun just to sort of watch him 
kind of um, uh, return to more of this very artsy streak he has in him. And so um, that's cool. And then with my daughter, she's so funny. She is like my dancing veterinarian. And so watching how sweet she is and how touched she is about things dealing with animals and, you know, certainly hoping that she's able to hang on to that sweetness. And so I think the best part is kind of having a front row seat at who they're going to become. Oh, gosh, well, that's that's so beautiful. It's, it, you know, it obviously makes me excited for what's to come, you know, to think that there's so many changes ahead and mm -hmm. so many new adventures. And also, I think what I liked most and, and what came across and how you just shared that is that you are so happy to to take us. Obviously, you're there to nurture, you're there to guide, you're there to raise, but you're also really happy to take a step back and just let August and Cherish be who they are. Yes. And I think that's a beautiful reminder because sometimes I find myself, I mean, obviously he's 19 months. You need to be a helicopter mom when oh, you're yes. going nuts on the playground. Like, mm -hmm. yes. Mm -hmm. However, it's just a reminder that, you know, they're, they are their own little people and we just get to be the guides for that, but that we really want to support them in their, in their development. So. Yes. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Nefertiti, for being a part of our podcast and for taking the time to chat with us and um, and share your story. And also to, you know, obviously share your story in this capacity, but to have shared your story in such a transparent and such a powerful way through your Amazon bestselling book, Motherhood So White. So before we wrap up today, would you mind just telling our listeners how they can connect with you? Again, all of this will be in the show notes, but just um, so that they can hear it directly from you, please. Okay. Well, if you are looking for a memoir to read, especially with National Adoption Month coming up in November, uh, Motherhood So White, a memoir of race, gender, and parenting in America can be found wherever books are sold. And I certainly implore people to start with independent bookstores, Black-owned bookstores, and the library, definitely. Those are my favorite places. I am on social media at Instagram. I am Nefertiti Austin. I'm on Twitter at Nefertiti Austin. And Facebook, you guessed it. Nefertiti Austin <laughs> and my website is www.nefertitiaustin.com Awesome. Well, thank you so much and, and again, all this information will be available in the show notes for our listeners and we cannot thank you enough for your time Nefertiti. So thank you for sharing your story and your experience with us and thank you to our listeners for tuning in and as always, please rate and review us if you have a quick moment over on iTunes. It helps other moms discover our podcast and learn a little bit more about our community. You can certainly follow us on Instagram at ABCs of Matrescence and we look forward to connecting with all of you soon. Thanks again so much. Have a great day.